and welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's a show about how everything is posting. Uh, my name is Hussein. Uh, I'm a bit cold, uh, but you know, you can follow me on wherever you follow people and I'll, I'll tell you about how cold I am. Hi, I'm Phoebe. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PRHRoy, on Instagram at Phoebe underscore Rosa underscore Holly. Um, and I'm, I'm, al- I'm also cold. That's my, yeah, that's you my do. feedback. You are like wearing a scarf. It's- and a beanie it's so it's so cold my garden is still un, is still like several inches thick with snow oh my god i did like i i i uh, i made a shovel yesterday out of like a bit like a couple of sticks or like a couple of like bits of spare wood that i had in my thing um and i because i had to like uh we i live in this kind of weird place where we have sort of have like a shared driveway and my neighbor is like a bit elderly so um i was like yeah i'll kind of like shovel the uh the snow out and then I realized I didn't have a proper shovel. Uh-huh. Um, so, 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 uh, yeah, lots of people uh, looking at me as I'm trying to use this weird contraption to push snow out and just shaking their heads because they disagree with <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, there we go. Like Britain's Britain is snowy. Uh, it was actually really nice. I like the photos that you put. Yeah. Like I thought it was very pretty. Yeah, no, it, it was is, very like, pretty it, where it, I was it does, as well. It, like it, it does look pretty, but it's um, a little bit sticks in the crawl that um, if I want to not freeze to freeze to death then it's gonna cost mm. like three times our monthly food budget to do to, <laughs> to put the heating yeah. on so that so that's yeah, kind have... of that kind of undermines the kind of the feeling mm. of oh look this like you know mr snow has been in the night we finally like bit the bullet and put our heating on to like a very like on a very low level so the house is warmer than it has been usually but like we would we my wife and i were just like yeah we're not looking at the smart meters today because it's just going to really stress us out um so we're gonna like have some heat as a treat um so things are going great in britain (laughs) um just before we introduce our guest uh just just to say thank you for listening to this free episode we have lots of bonus content on patreon patreon.com forward slash 10k post podcast uh yeah five bucks a month you get lots of really cool content uh interviews uh film reviews and just like yeah lots of hijinks really good stuff and like you know lots of devon getting very exasperated by me (laughs) um uh, speaking of which, uh, time to introduce our guest, uh, someone who actually I've been a fan of on Twitter for a long time, um, and who's like Fred, but we're going to slightly talk about today, uh, has been, I think he's actually been on our list for a bit of time. Um, so we're really glad to uh, have uh, in the way of uh, his uh, Twitter page, the author Seamus O'Reilly <laughs> joining us today. Uh, Seamus, how's it going? Uh, very well. Thank you for having me. I'm also very cold and I also have stuck on the heat mm. And it's having zero yeah, effect. Absolutely, absolutely oh, no. fuck all. Yeah. <laughs> it's not it's, it's, it must be. It, I must. It must just be that I would be colder if it wasn't on. But I haven't worked out. There doesn't seem to be a tipping point. There, I feel the radiators and they're they're yeah. boiling. You know, they're they're hot, but it's having. Yeah. It's having zero effect. It's like they're talking to themselves. The cold is not listening. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. We've had we've sort of had that as well. Although yesterday we kind of got the to be warm, but what we realized is that the radiator sort of had to be on for a long time. Um, or it had to be on for a while and because we were sort of just like having it on as an hour for a treat and something like that it was like well it's not really doing much unless you sit right next to it yeah um, so, and we, it's just it's absolutely horrible and yeah. i can't i can't imagine because i've been i think like everyone uh sort of rationing and really eking out the last bits of no we don't need it on so i'll just put on another layer and it has been just the last four or five days it's been like no we've we need yeah, to eat on and yeah for- yeah i feel like you're not the only one like there are lots of sort of conversations on twitter about it and like yeah the whole like and you know 
kind of amusing in some ways, but also just really sad in other ways where it's like, okay, well, yeah, you know, people are sort of rationing heat and like, this is definitely not like a normal situation. And crucially, it's like a very much a very avoidable situation um, that like, for the most part, uh, lots of sort of mainstream media have just sort of shrugged their shrugged their shoulders and been like, well, can't really do much about it. So uh, I so think it's vague. the same as pretty much every issue in contemporary <laughs> British society, which is on the <laughs> on the mic on the micro level, the mundane details are really funny and interesting and, and good to talk about. But you just take three steps back and you realize why is everything like mm. this? <laughs> and it's lots not of, funny yeah. anymore. Lots so of is, things. Yeah. I was gonna oh. say lots of things feel broken. It's like so when um the snow happened and there were lots of videos of like cars like sort of like sliding into each other and like. It was kind of beautiful in some way to see like SUVs kind of like like uh, being like bumper cars. Yeah, kind of modern ballet. But then on the other side, it's like, yeah, exactly. But then on the other side, it's like, well, well, the biggest motorway or like the most, like one of the sort of biggest motorways in Britain, like has not had any grit salt on it. And uh, the collective response has been, well, just deal with it. Put on another layer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even, even the fact that, I mean, my children can't get a dentist. Mm. At all, at all, ever. It's not like a matter of having to swap around. There is not a single dentist in London that will take a child. So oh. I guess they just don't, they just, I don't know, mind your teeth, keep them in a jar overnight, maybe every night. I don't, I don't understand. I don't think you've thought it through because if all their teeth fall out, then they won't need a dentist. That is true. So. I actually think about that all the time. I kind of, I really should look into it because it's probably not a good way to, to actually rationalize it, but it is literally how I've been rationalizing it. So you get a do-over. I get a do-over in about a year and a half, don't I? Um, and I don't want anyone to disabuse me of that because then I'll just get so angry. I'll, I don't know, I'll be going into big dental uh, in the city center and like burning down some office building filled with financiers and shareholders. Yeah. Just, to, just to make well, look, it clear, I genuinely, that was yeah. not a substantive threat from our guest. <laughs> Various. That was a satirical that was swipe. A satirical, a satirical sideways swipe. view of the world that I have. I do genuinely think that, like, we are kind of we might head sort of head towards a period where what we'll sort of see is like the self-fashioned doctor slash dentist, um, and just like the idea that, like, you know, because of like the lack of affordability, you will sort of see this rise of like self-taught like uh, uh, physicians and uh, dental workers and stuff like that. Uh, which you can like, I mean, I think Francisco Garcia like did a yeah, piece he like, did. a lot. Like, it was, it was, it was good ago. about people yeah. like doing dental yeah. work off, um, off YouTube. Well, mm. of course, like the next, the next step is going to be the, uh, home, home dental work influencer on that's what's going to be called. You know, you know that, you know oh, that girl, <laughs> you know that girl we spoke about, uh, that woman we spoke about rather on, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago about the one who did the thread on, uh, how to steal your boyfriend or how to steal someone else's oh, her, boyfriend. Yeah. She's she's a toothpaste influencer and her thing is like she kind of sharks um she kind of sharks like uh non-fluoride oh, yeah, toothpaste, the charcoal which is kind toothpaste. of like made it, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Charcoal, clay, all that stuff. And like I'm not sure whether she's just doing this very elaborate bit or whether she's genuinely being serious about it. Um, but I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated to sort of it, see where it, it goes. It kind of strikes me as like, I don't know if you ever had one of those days where you had, you had to come into school and like pick up your stationery and stuff. And if you got there late, you'd always get like really kind of horrible, crappy stuff that wasn't very good. It's like influencers are arriving into the party just so late that they end up with toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> you know, rather than like, I don't know, like Cartier or like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. even like iPhones or something. Yeah, well, look, it's happening. I mean, one of the fun, one of the funny things about the whole like Elon Musk, like blue check 
kind of thing that he's now reformed, I think, a total of three times. Um, is that it always predicated on the idea that like the blue check kind of warrants so much importance that like you know it it sort of you know that there is kind of like this high demand for it. And the thing that I was I think about every time you see people who are like, oh, if I had a blue check, then you know people would have to pay attention to me, which is effectively what like the eight dollar kind of Twitter blue thing is about. Is that it? Kind of it, it assumes that like the blue check on Twitter is in any way important. And like maybe a few years ago it was because I remember when I got mine, you know, I got like, you know, I think I, I used to, I got like a bunch of stuff, which was kind of cool for someone who had just got like their first job in London. Like, you know, I'd have PR firms who would like take me out for dinner at like fairly fancy places, you know, fancy by my standards, not kind of like fancy by, I imagine, like a, most foodie standards. Um, you know, I would sort of get invited to like, you know, book launches and like a film premiere every so often, like an indie film premiere every so often. Um, but now you don't even get that really. Like even the PRs like they send to you, one of my favorite PR emails, and I just shame is I don't know whether you get it as well, is like, oh, we've just opened up this new kind of like fancy club in London in Mayfair. Um, here are some pictures. If you would like to use the pictures, please like let me know. And I email them being like, Well, can I come to the club? And they were like, uh, <laughs> no, not really. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, we've like all the slots have been taken, but you could use the pictures if you want. So like yeah, the kind of like the value of the Twitter blue check is basically nothing at this point. That's amazing. I got one for uh, <laughs> I, I, the only one I got recently was um, uh, there was like a Formula One race driving experience. I have zero right. interest in Formula One or my, my dad. It's the only sport that my dad likes, okay. um, which is I'm using sport with 75 inverted commas <laughs> there. Um, I follow Sean Locke, the late great Sean Locke's. Uh, maxim about Formula One, which is I'd get the same amount of enjoyment from switching on two washing machines at once and seeing which one finished first. <laughs> but anyway, I'm writing this piece for the uh, Observer at the moment about learning to drive and everything else. And uh, they thought that that'd be quite funny. And it was the same thing. It was like, wow, this looks really cool. Can I come? And I read down and it was like, oh no, they're just telling me that it's on and <laughs> that I can go and, and pay to do it like everyone else. This is just like, this is just spam. But it's been yeah. sent to me like it's a favor. <laughs> I no, I really yeah. like that because there was definitely like a period of time when it was sort of de rigueur for uh, for journalists particularly to post like PR emails like in a kind of a like oh how dare they how dare they imagine that I will write about their product me me a very important in, a very important individual who would never <laughs> dream of writing about something so inferior as toothpaste but now they're getting <laughs> but now they're getting emails saying yeah you, you we, we actually have not selected you to <laughs> to, to be on our very yeah, special you list yeah, you actually can't come to the escape room in but, Shoreditch, uh, but, but you, you can certainly but have we'll some pictures of it. We'll certainly let want. you tell other people about it if you would. <laughs> if it will let you do that, if yeah. we'll let you associate yourself with us to that degree. Yeah. As <laughs> well, was, uh, saying that that email you got or the the invite you got was maybe part of it that you might be interested. They think in showing up the pictures as if you did have a membership. So that was kind of like you get a bit of kudos, no, no, and then they no, get the... it, no. It wasn't even that. It was just like you can use these pictures so you can tell other people to come visit and pay to come to this like club. Um, so what? Think, what's the quid pro quo there? What, what do they think that you're getting out of it in this? No, I think world? I think we're just like we're giving you a story, right? And it's like, well, number one, like I don't do this type of work, <laughs> right? And you should really, but like I don't know, because again, because I was like on, I I think my email, like my work email, is like on a Gorkana list and has been for a lot, and I haven't been able to get rid of it. You just get these types of emails, which like kind of purport to offer you something, but are almost surprised when you respond being like, well, can I have the thing? 
because they're like, well, no, we assume that you would, you're, you, you know, you're not important enough anymore to have that. Well, do you know those um, things, those <laughs> things the, there's the fake influencer that is to say, uh, Taylor Lorenz did a great piece about it three years ago. Um, young up and coming wannabe influencers on TikTok, mostly they will go out and buy something. Mm. And then when they're making their video, they'll say, oh, and thank you so much to Cartier for yeah. this, or thank you so much to Apple for this. So they're doing a fake shout out as if they've been, it's spawned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Con. So, which is like such an unbelievable 180 from the cool factor that used to be attached mm -hmm. to not selling out yep. or yeah. to being above this kind of thing or to being yeah, yeah. sort of like, I do this for the people. I don't do this for the, for the books. Now it's like, yeah. get that bag has gone so far yeah, no, that you literally yeah, no. are pretending that you're getting something for free from a company to promote yeah. that company, but you're actually paying for it. It's kind of mind melting. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I think like in I, I I've been thinking a little bit about this because I'm I'm wondering whether like next year we should sort of like do a kind of couple of episodes on it. Um, but I think yeah that it's it's sort of like very open now. I think as you mentioned before, like it was kind of a bit. And Phoebe, like you know, when journalists, including myself, I think a couple of times put out those things like, oh, why would like a PR firm like email me about like you know inviting me on this weird kind of cultural experience that I don't want to be in because I'm like you know I'm a serious reporter or whatever. Um, you know, I think back then it was like it was kind of a little bit naff or, you know, a bit gross to be like, yeah, I get paid to sort of post stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I sort of remember some discourse around that, whereas now I think it's kind of like, you know, this is sort of a this is sort of a seemingly accepted as a career path for, um, you know, many people to kind of make a living. Right. Um, you know, the expansion of kind of like you know, content economies and influencer economies and so on very much kind of uh it, it, it sort of makes sense now and so it would make sense in that way for people to be like well if i can kind of pretend that i'm already on the ladder then maybe more things will come my way legitimately and it's much more about like the aesthetics and the performance mm. of it um but what i was also going to add to seamus is like to, to your point seamus was that even i, I think like the, the twitter blue check doesn't really mean anything i think the instagram blue check is sort of very much devalued from what it used to be um, and because there's like such an abundance of, you know, influences on there, you will find that lots of them are kind of, you know, you'll have sort of people who are, you know, uh, promoting like high end brands or, you know, Gymshark or whatever. But what you'll find, especially on like my recommended page, for example, are people just like either promoting like indie brands as if they are kind of much bigger than they actually are, or in a lot of cases, just promoting like stuff that is quite low quality like a lot of kind of like low quality fast fashion fast jewelry and so on um and so like again it's very much just like performing the influencer uh and as a result and because again because uh, instagram kind of wants to sort of be a shopping page for the most part or like at least that's what it seems like you know you will have like much more of this as more brands kind of choose to put their products onto instagram than like other platforms mm. right um, so yeah, I don't know, like, you know, verification means very, very different things. And, uh, it is very interesting to remember the time when the Twitter blue check meant stuff, uh, when now it's kind of like, oh, well, unless you're sort of under 25 and have like 10,000. Also, that was another thing too. Like you didn't really have to have that many followers on Twitter to sort of like get your blue check and sort of get invited to all the cool shit. Whereas now on TikTok, it's like, you know, you have to have like the big following and you have to have like, you know the verification and stuff like so there is much more sort of commercial pressure i thought that i thought there wasn't before. verification on tiktok i thought that was sort of supposed no, to be oh is. i thought that was supposed to be one of its selling points maybe that's a 
Maybe that's changed. No, there is. I mean, like, it's, I think follower count matters a lot mm. more based on what I've been told. But like, there is definitely verification on TikTok because obviously, like, you know, impersonators and all that. I don't stuff. think a blue check has ever meant anything. I'm sorry. Like, I don't. I don't. I, 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 don't, I don't wish to to pour. I'm leaving this call. <laughs> to pour cold water on on either of your yeah. dreams, but well, I definitely remember yeah. there it basically being a being an indication that someone was that someone had a kind of had a media job of some description, mm. and it being a and it being a little bit like. There are there are kind of properly famous people who, for whatever reason, didn't have a blue tick, and then there was like the sub editor for a kind of <laughs> for, a, for a crowdfunded football magazine, and they have a, I think <laughs> I, I a think, blue tick. I think I saw someone was trying to find the person with the lowest follower count that had a blue oh, tick a couple of years ago. I think it was in the low hundreds. I think it was like three or four hundred. But it was the it was exactly what you're saying. It was like the editor of some <laughs> university paper in Indiana yeah. or something. See, you know? I, see, I and... respect that. I respect having a few hundred followers and still being like, yeah. and guess what, bitches? This is also formally me. <laughs> <laughs> now, like I saw the other day that there's like a person on Twitter who like got bought Twitter blue. Um, 14 followers has a blue check. I'm just going to say, well done to everyone yeah. involved in that. Brilliant stuff. Um, yeah, there's a, um, I, there's a uh, Google add-on that you can get called $8, which just shows up paid or verified immediately. Oh, amazing. Uh, which okay. I really recommend it on. And you can edit what it says. So if you wanted to, it could say uh, verified. It can also say, you know, Musk shell or, you know, complete can loser. You, can you make you it want. say, send a personal email to Elon Musk asking him directly yeah. and calling him, uh, yeah, you calling him presume. daddy in the... Yeah. Please, please, after the Twitter files, please find the files that prove that my wife had no right to divorce me. Um, uh, so before we get before we get started with the show and before we get started with the thread that we have brought Seamus on to uh, explain to us in the court of public opinion... Um, I did want to address something very small. Uh, it is something that uh, I was not sure whether I was going to talk about, but Phoebe, you made quite a good point about what it like represents or like what it might represent and how it sort of fits into the stuff that we've been talking about in over the past few months. So people who follow me will know that a certain right-wing think tank called Policy Exchange uh, published a report about uh, the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse was a scandal in Birmingham, which involved uh, a lot of fake letters. So basically like, it kind of the, the whole Trojans course scandal was predicated on this idea that so-called Islamization was taking place in um, in primary schools in Birmingham. Um, it was a very big kind of like scandal, which involved like the local council, the education authorities. Uh, Michael Gove, who was education secretary at the time, got heavily involved. Um, but what it turned out to be was that the letter that started the whole thing was a hoax. And so a lot of kids' educations were like put severely at risk, if not kind of ruined entirely. Uh, because of the scandal and it became much more about well in to kind of put it in short term because i don't want to sort of go into the details about it it kind of became a uh lightning rod for broader islamophobia across the country um the new york times put a podcast about like made a podcast about this it was a very good podcast uh earlier this year and then on trash future uh me and nate buffet uh my co-host of trash future like interviewed the two uh hosts of that show um now the kind of people, the, the sort of right-wing press who were very like supportive of, uh, you know, the kind of Islamophobic uh, narratives and still remain so, um, commissioned, uh, well, Policy Exchange kind of worked with them to um, refute the NYT. They didn't really do a good job of it, but the idea was just like, 
uh, the New York Times keeps saying mean things about Britain and uh, saying that maybe the Trojan horse thing was like very overplayed and like ruined a lot of lives and destroyed a community. Uh, that also is a form of Britain phobia and therefore should be punished. Um, and so they they put out a list of people who were supposedly quite supportive of the podcast, which included me. I showed up second on the list of like this yeah, kind of list. Yeah, you of, did. I think, and we were like, so proud. Were like over, <laughs> there were like over a hundred people. And a lot of them are just kind of like Twitter accounts with barely low followers. A lot of them are kind of, you know, not even prominent Muslims, but just kind of like Muslims who have opinion and sort of, you know, uh, have publicly facing jobs. A lot of them work in like charities and, you know, other types of like public facing organizations. So it is probably safe to say that this report is less of kind of a interrogation into what the New York Times journalism purported and much more of a here is a list of people who you should who like respectable British institutions should blacklist. And again, I was second on that list. So um, I don't know who's going to blacklist me. At this stage, <laughs> but I, I guess like anyone who's just like, oh, you would make such a good Instagram influencer <laughs> to uh, advertise my toothpaste. <laughs> Sadly, no more, because apparently I am involved in uh, at least uh, supporting the Islamification of the UK, which, to which I say, yeah. Absolutely. Um, this is, I know, so I don't know, like, this was sort of weird to see. I was given a heads up on it on Sunday. And when I was sort of told, like, the extent of it, I was just like, yeah, fuck it, whatever. And I still kind of am about it. Like, I don't really care that much about the weird, like, freaks who run policy exchange and what they have to say. I think even, like, by their own standards, like, this report didn't really cut through at all, like, among anyone other than the people who were already sort of backing them. But... I do think it's quite interesting, the structure of the pool report and like the way in which like over half of it is basically dedicated to like, here are some tweets that we found and here are a list of tweets. I think it's very funny to imagine a think tank guy with like a PhD whose job it is just to sort of like read through posts and like put them in a document. Mm -hmm. Because that's very much what we do and neither of us have PhDs. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. We don't, you don't need one. You don't need one. You, you wasted, need a PhD. wasted a lot yeah. of time and money if that's what you're going to be doing with your doctorate. <laughs> uh, like, regret, regret to inform yeah. me. Um, the, the, yeah, the yeah. reason I wanted us to talk about it and just to be very clear, um, I did not like bully Hussein into discussing it if he, if he felt that he was, if it was you know, genuinely going to be putting mm. him at any kind of uh, any kind of risk uh, but the reason I the reason I wanted to talk about it a little bit first of all because I think that a certain amount of uh, defiance is good in the face of this kind of action it's very obvious that the people who put together the report if you look down the list of if you look down the list of names the point of including uh, including these social media users like some of whom it literally just says social media user it's just it's just some person tweeting like it's it, it yeah. the, the idea that um my, that that michael gove who's been in government for the last last over a decade um and kind of sort of senior sort of sort of think tank wonks have like less access to the mechanisms and like corridors of power than like some social media user is frankly laughable um, but the point is very clearly supposed to be uh, to intimidate the users of the list. It is supposed to uh, whip up uh, potential harassment against them. I mean, the mistake, the mistake that they made, to my mind, is to put it in a 200-page report. 
No one's reading yeah. a two hundred page report. The only people I know who've read it are the people who were who were mentioned in it. That's the only people I know. I haven't even read it. I just like they just named yeah, exactly. like, well, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna guess <laughs> yeah. those people did no, not they did read not the whole read, thing. They did not read the report. And absolutely, you know, first like first rule of uh of consumer engagement using using socials, you keep it succinct. If they'd done an infographic then then you know the people on the the people on named in this report would have you know would have ended up where they wanted them to end up on some kind of like kind of horrible kind of stormfront forum or something or something of the of the kind but it is but it is obviously supposed to be and it is a part of a concerted a concerted effort to uh to discipline particularly muslims and particularly muslim women um which Hussein is not. Sorry, I um, regret to inform you, <laughs> Hussein, not not presently a Muslim woman. Um, but it is meant to discipline them. It is meant to terrorise them out of uh, participating in public life. It's meant to terrorise them out of publicly having a political opinion that they are more than more than entitled to have. And this isn't even your standard okay all right okay so we have come across a person who isn't white they're on tv right we've got to find a way we've got to find a way of making it clear that they are not welcome in public life so we will run a little search on their twitter and find something that they've said um that we can that we can kind of gin up into being uh to being something problematic uh this isn't even that this is just saying i think that this podcast run by the new york times is a good investigation into this scandal mm. and it's outrageous that our own media have basically pretended that it didn't happen like that's that's literally it these are not this is not a controversial statement and it is also extremely noticeable yeah. that nate was left out even though he participated in the interview with hussein um owen jones was left out even though he participated in the same interview that Sarkar did it is very obviously the point to uh, to make the people named on this list afraid, afraid for their lives and afraid for their livelihoods and afraid for their capacities to participate in public and public civic and political life. It's a despicable and disgusting thing to do. It was handled extremely badly because it's in a 200 page report. You fucking dickheads. <laughs> like it takes two seconds. Do you know how easy it is to whip up harassment against someone? Why couldn't you do that? You gotta write your little wonky report. <laughs> like fucking hell. Like imagine, like imagine trying to do the full kind of like Tom Newton done, Newton done here is the, you know, here's the Aryan Union. <laughs> union list of journalists but putting it in a policy exchange report talk about sticking the landing um i i yeah. also i also just i mean i listened to the podcast which i thought was excellent but well, like if you. you if you wrote down every single thing said in all of the interviews around the the interviews all the podcasts and the whole podcast itself the trojan horse affair that wouldn't be 200 pages long like what happens <laughs> If you were to like, if I if you were to like have it in front of you and you skip to like page one hundred and fourteen, what's going on on page one hundred and fourteen? <laughs> what have they, what have they gotten to yeah. there? Because now, the details now, now of the case are so obvious. Now we so move on to the liars. Obvious. <laughs> like that's like that's what it's gonna say on page one hundred fourteen. I mean, the, the, brevity is the soul of wit, as you say, but also yeah. just 
what the, it's don't tell anyone I'm mad. Yeah, exactly. Don't tell anybody <laughs> yeah, that exactly I'm mad. What it is. That's exactly what Phoebe yeah, said. That's exactly Please what don't said. publish a 200 page report saying I'm mad. Um, yeah, no, no, it, is, yeah, it was I, not, I, yeah, not yeah. a dignified response at all. But it also, it also reminded me of something that we were talking about before, which was um, in an episode that we did, uh, that we did earlier on this year, when we were talking about uh, what happens when posts actually do have a kind of uh, concrete worrying effect on your on your life because uh, because they've been used as a kind of access access of discipline normally by a mainstream media organ very very weirdly considering all the discussion that gets uh, that gets put into and poured into social media pylons um, when someone is genuinely placed at risk or genuinely had harm done to them uh, the pylon has been led by by the, by the mainstream media the the young the young man who um, whose family got targeted by neo-nazis because he didn't want a picture of the queen in the university common room that was all led by a newspaper like the like it wasn't that was not led by people on twitter um it's just that people a bit being unguarded with their posts uh, is another tool that the mainstream media can use to can use to 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 discipline them and that's and so that's what it's for and one of the things that came up around the death of the queen was people was the obvious was the normal obvious thing of people saying it really isn't worth being doorstep by daily mail journalists so maybe keep your jokes to your group chat and then mm. there were even more people who were making fun of this position and saying it was wet saying uh if you work somewhere that would care then you should find a new job which honestly to me that is just peerless leftism like the idea of just being like <laughs> so if you happen to work somewhere somewhere that happens to be very very precaritized and where they can just find someone else and you're reliant on shift work you know in order to survive um just tell your boss to fuck off because you're allowed an opinion on the queen like seriously come on lads like that's the kind of thing that only really works for spreadsheet jobs which is like which i just think feels like a li- it's a limited vision of of the world and it is a dishonest vision of the world um but i i also think that there was a there was definitely an asymmetry of effect for i mean speaking as a northern irish person um with the the surname O'Reilly and ten brothers and sisters, uh, my my feelings on Irish nationalism <laughs> are probably fairly uh, predictable. Yeah. But I did see there is obviously you know we kind of minded our p's and q's for the first few seconds, and then, <laughs> and you know, then. the day yeah, and uh, there was a real rejoice, a big rejoicing between particularly what is commonly referred to as Black Twitter as an African American yeah. Twitter. And the Irish people who were making, you know, jokes and memes, some of them fairly riddled. Um, But that was taken in a lot more sport, I think, than when black British people Mm. and South Asian British people um, and and people, you know, from that diaspora, from a Commonwealth diaspora, um, they they got the full, you know, Sir Killalot, you know, the robots are all descending Mm. on you kind of treatment. And I saw that happen again and again because there is something which offends these people about power being questioned what? from specific what corners. It, what could that be? Do we have any theories? <laughs> we, we've, we've got our Luke best got, men on the job, but we just can't, can't work get, it out. can't get to it. And this is exactly, I'm really glad that you said this because this is exactly the point that we made in this in this episode, which is it's all very well for um, for a particular kind of 
uh, particular kind of social media user to be like, oh, don't be so wet. No one's coming for you. When it's it's true, if you are a probably white male office worker who just uses Twitter to, to shitpost and, and goof off, probably no one is coming for you. But there is definitely... Uh, there is definitely a type of person who is far more likely to come to the attention of of, of these discipline powers, and I think that this that there being this section, which is literally here, is a roundup of these people's posts. It's literally, it's literally using 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 posts um, as something which is presumably working towards recommending some kind of policy, not entirely sure what the policy might be maybe prevent muslims from posting something along i would support that i, I would i would support I mean, that if like in the right I mean, way I sus- like, honestly, I, you know. honestly mate i suspect i suspect your wife would probably would probably be fully, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fully into that idea yeah she, she, yeah she just she just got a job at policy exchange for this one specific <laughs> it was, thing it was, it was it was her that submitted your name they were like i actually don't think oh, that yeah. he really said anything about it. she's like no he definitely did he definitely did right here <laughs> she came in with a thumb drive of your posts yeah, yeah now it's... now 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 it's all like fitting together yeah. just, just um, stuck them in the main the, the policy exchange mainframe which i imagine is just a whizzing fizz bang oh, sort of yeah. like virtual reality style exchange of policies all the things that they must be thinking about exactly. all these policies yeah. just whizzing around in the exactly. ether the real, yeah, it's like the opening scene yeah, of yeah the real digital yeah. brains trust is what we're dealing with at the old yeah. policy exchange but but yeah. I, but i think I, that this is on. a really good example of how uh, it's true. In the main, your posts are not going to get you into trouble. That's true, legally, legally, professionally, um, or, or otherwise. But because of the still enormous, e- enormous power imbalance between both mainstream media and uh, organisations like Policy Exchange and the average social media user, even if you are somebody who has a reasonable amount of social power, i.e., uh, a public-facing job or being a kind of public figure of any description, they can still publish what is essentially an incitement list. And that's what it's mm. supposed to be. That is what that is what they intended it to be. It is very clearly supposed to be an intimidatory tactic. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I think it is important in the face of intimidatory tactics to be to be defiant. And yeah. not to like- allow it to, uh, to 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 drive you from uh, from the public participation, which is your right. I don't like want to spend too much time on it, although I do think it's very funny. But of all the things they could have sort of, I got was me, gonna say like, this is so, all this my is, opinions. Of, like, seriously, all, it's one yeah. of it's one of your most like it's one of your most like kind of serious, <laughs> most well considered, <laughs> and also like mildest opinions. This is this is such. <laughs> This is such Al Capone for tax yeah. evasion stuff. Well, very it funny really, because really it's, 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 yeah, it's a good it's a good segue to like get into uh, what uh, Seamus wants to bring up in the next segment. But what I will say to kind of like not necessarily to round this up, but more just kind of you know I, I think that it's important for people who like don't really know that much about this. I imagine that most of our listeners kind of like can see what this report actually is. But it's a very good example of like. I think there's like a good conversation to have about what think tanks are actually supposed to be, at least in this country anyway. Um, you know, I, I worked at a think tank for a little bit uh, that like was sort of politically neutral, but was definitely like sort of, it's kind of internal politics were much more conservative 
uh, than uh, they sort of let on. And the reports, like, weren't, the, the think tanks, like, weren't kind of under any illusion that, like, of what they were supposed to be, which was kind of really to sort of accelerate the vanity projects and the internal grievances of a much kind of broader political class. And what this report really is, is kind of like, it is like really the ultimate grievance in the sense that like, you know, uh, ever since like that podcast came out earlier this year, you know, the people who have sort of like, uh, who have done this report, but also, you know, people like Go, people like Nick Timothy and everything have been kind of like whining about like the kind of the, the podcast. And though they've sort of made some criticisms about the findings of that, which again, like we speak about some of them on the Trash Future episode, like, you know, if you listen to it, uh, we are sort of like, you know, we are kind of like very impressed by the, the extent of the journalism that they did, but we certainly aren't kind of like fawning about it. And we mm. do bring up like, okay, here are some of the criticisms that were made on the offset of this. And like, would you want to talk about that some more? And they do talk about it, right? In the podcast itself, like Brian, like there's kind of a whole section where Brian Reed, the kind of like senior American journalist is like, Hamza did these things that I probably wouldn't necessarily classify, or I, I definitely don't think are, is kind of like good journalistic practice. And it je almost jeopardized the whole project. And this is kind of like our thinking around it. So it's worth listening to. But like the report is not supposed to sort of be a refutation. The refutation actually makes like a very small amount of it. Much more of it is dedicated to this idea that like there is a kind of, like for lack of like a better term, there is like a group of like Muslims who occupy like, not even senior or important positions. Bear in mind that, like, I am classified as a freelance journalist in this report, and like, <laughs> fundamentally, like, I am I am a podcaster that, like, you know, is mere maybe like kind of like you know uh, significant, but like nowhere near as much as kind of you know other British podcasts that do a lot better than you know any of my shows do. Um, but because like I have some semblance of like recognition, like I am sort of considered to be a threat, and like a lot of these people on the list you know, many of whom are like Muslim, like practicing Muslim women who like work in jobs and charities and kind of like nonprofits and everything. And who certainly have like much less insulation and much less kind of like protection than I do are added on this list as kind of being part of this collective threat. And one of the things in that report that I thought was quite noteworthy in terms of how they were thinking about it was they kind of said that ultimately these Muslims aren't part of organizations that are really kind of worth being a worth kind of important. Mm. So on my when they were talking about me in the report, they were like, it's very interesting how the journalists who were supportive of the NYT podcast are all kind of freelance or they don't work for kind of like newspapers or the BBC or whatever, right? Read, read, read between <laughs> the lines of that as you will. But my interpretation of that was fundamentally just like, you know, they aren't kind of, you know, they aren't really part of like institutions or establishments that are worth paying attention to. They're not part of like the right think tanks or they're not really like, you know, part of the kind of mainstream newspapers that sort of prop yeah. up this very small and insular type of information economy that you should pay attention to. Yeah, and what they're, um, and what they're saying yeah, as yeah. well is that is that there is no legitimate way for for a Muslim to have a political opinion of any description, even if it's just yeah. praising the contents and the research of 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 a, of an American podcast. Like it's it is. Yeah, trying to undermine the legitimacy of you taking any position at all. Um, it's just it's it's absolutely it's just it's just standard fifth columnism. That's literally that's literally all it is. It's the it's the it's the oldest trick the British media has in the book. Five it's columns, five pillars. <laughs> but it's also weird that like the crime is being is sort of praising or engaging with or recommending a <laughs> podcast by the New York <laughs> yeah. Times. You're yeah. not you're not sending around like 
you know, like the Turner Diaries or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion or something. It's not yeah. like this is some disgusting Samizdat thing that, you know, only real extremists or radicals want. It's, it is the world's largest and for some good reasons, for some bad, most respected news yeah, organization. Yeah, exactly, yeah, it's, exactly. a, it's the number one podcast in the world. What what on earth are you talking yeah, about? No, it's absolutely. Right. It's like, yeah. It's the most I, center, center, middle of the road organ yeah, and, that exists and has ever existed. And it was also part of like the serial kind of series. And bear in mind that like serial kind of like has basically built the blueprint of what kind of narrative storytelling journal like podcast journalism looks like. And like many of these newspapers who apparently are worth paying more attention to than the New York Times, i.e. like the Telegraph or the Times or whatever, basically do their own imitations of serial like all the time. It is a very weird bit of analysis. Um, but also like I think that it's very oh, well, my final kind of point on this will be this, right? I think it's very, very funny to write a two hundred page report getting angry at people that didn't like a podcast but that liked a podcast that you didn't like. And I feel like we should do the same next year. So please do uh, do, do keep tuned. Uh, me and Phoebe are working on a 500-page yep. report um, on uh, listing all the people that, uh, uh, I don't what podcasts don't we like? I'm not really like, really, I don't really have strong I, opinions about podcasts. We, like, we don't have any official strong opinions <laughs> on, <laughs> on other people's shows. Yeah, well, look, we're gonna we're gonna release a five hundred page report specifically just on our haters. Like the Guardian used right. to have one called Talking Horses, which is just people talking <laughs> about horses, which I think is really bad. Uh, miss it, it's mis advertising because I thought we was gonna get some talking horses, right? And but it was like you know like talking horses. Ah, uh, gotcha. About horses. So oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah. All right. So okay. I'm uh, that would be the one I would I would suggest. But I mean, I'm okay. open, of course, to other old, offers. Old right, so Mr. Mr. Syntax gonna, yeah. launching another <laughs> frenzied attack. <laughs> me, me and Fee, okay, so Phoebe and I are going to write this 500 yeah. page report about how much we dislike people who listen to talking horses, and Seamus is going to write yeah. the board. That's Thank right. You. Sound good? Okay, great. <laughs> that was great. Um, okay, so I know that we have we have about half an hour or like just slightly less left. And uh, Seamus, thank you for letting me indulge in talking about myself and like all the sort of qualms I get into on the internet. Um, it is now time for you to answer for your posts uh, uh, in the court of public <laughs> opinion. No, we uh, so we wanted to. Uh, I I I remember this thread because Phoebe sent it um last week and she was and he was just like. Have you have you seen this? And I vaguely kind of remembered it, and I remembered it broadly because of the Naomi Doctor Naomi Wolf tweet that um, is sort of like part of like this broader thread. And we're fans of Naomi Wolf on this podcast. We thought you know she she's featured many times, a friend of the show. Um, and the tweet that like is part of the thread. I'm going to ask you to explain the thread in a bit, but I want to just want to read out the Naomi Wolf tweet because it is very very funny. Um, it uh, Naomi Wolf says, and this was on the fifth of July, two thousand nineteen. Um, it was amazing to go to Belfast, which does not yet have 5G, and feel the sky, the air, the human experience, feel the way it did in the 1970s. Calm, still, peaceful, restful, and natural. Um, so you, you, you kind of described this post when you sent it to me as art, and I wondered whether we could use that as a starting point to talk about <laughs> both why you think Naomi, that tweet specifically is art for Naomi Wolf. Not that I'm like denying it or challenging it, I just, I'm interested in like why you think that. And also this broader tweet that you did in 2020, uh, which was, uh, it starts off saying, want to hear a funny story about something that happened to me this weekend. It concerns the internet, elephants, uh, and the absurdity of online nostalgia. Okay, well, I'll start with Naomi. Um, so I also adore Saint Naomi. 
Um, so, and I feel so bad for Naomi Klein. Has to, I, I've, I've read literally or, or read so many interviews or, or particularly podcasts or video interviews she's given where she makes a point of saying at the, the front that she's not Naomi Wolf because I think it happens so much. I think there's that, you know, that mnemonic that a guy came up with, which is, you know, separating your Naomi's. Mm. Naomi Klein, probably fine. Naomi Wolf, ooh, baby Wolf. <laughs> so um, I actually saw a really, a really, a really wonderful, uh, wonderful exchange happen the other day. Um, uh, Naomi Klein has a new book out about um, about the Green New Deal and about um, and about uh, s- slowing down development and degrowth. And I have I have not read this book. There is an argument going round that that uh degrowth only recommends um industrial um in, like a kind of reverse of industrial development in the global south while the global north continues to um develop and consume at the same rate if we look at how um how cli- about how the way that uh, engaging with the climate crisis has um, intersected with both colonialism and post-colonialism. It's not something that would especially surprise me, but Naomi Klein, I think, is a very serious, um, serious and good thinker. And I just, I can't, I cannot believe that this is not something that has occurred to her uh, in the preparation and research for this book. I just don't believe that to be the case. But she, but she posted about about this book of hers that's that's coming out, and somebody um, who I'm not familiar with appeared in Naomi's Naomi Klein's mentions and started calling her an eco-fascist, um, and so all these other people were like going, no, 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 you're thinking of Naomi Wolf, you're thinking of Naomi Wolf, and then <laughs> Naomi Klein like just answered, just sort of saying, no, I think he does mean me. <laughs> <laughs> i can't find it now i think she deleted it but i thought that was i thought that was that was wonderful <laughs> <laughs> well um yeah i uh i i kind of had the slow realization i think over the last eight or nine years and then subsequently discovering that it's gone way way back but that she's you know kind of naomi wolf this is doctor mm-hmm. naomi wolf has gotten further and further uh, unmoored from well, first orthodoxy, and then it would seem just common mm-hmm. sense. Um, like she was for a while espousing the idea that, you know, the vaccine was going to like scramble your DNA on a molecular level. She gets, she's a big white helmet truther. She's got loads of increasingly outre sort of not quite Q, but not quite not mm. Q beliefs. And her big thing in particularly uh, 2019, 2020, was that 5G was causing cancer and swelling of the brain and all this stuff. Completely unfounded unfounded nonsense, but also really strangely, um, sort of rose-tinted nostalgia that it was kind of wrapped up in. So when she said it was amazing to go to Belfast, which does not yet have 5G, feel the earth, sky, air, human experience, feel the way it did in the 1970s, calm, still, peaceful, restful, natural. I was someone from Northern Ireland, that was really funny to me because... <clears throat> A, Belfast does have 5G. It's one of the first places <laughs> <laughs> to get it ruled out. So before you even talk about anything else, like that is a hilarious entry mm-hmm. point. Before you get to the point that she is comparing Belfast now to the perfect, calm, peaceful, restful, natural state of things in the 1970s, mm. as if this is something that has been preserved in, you know, as someone who has 
you know, some lived experience of what Belfast might have been like in the 1970s. It was such an insane thing. And it was also just so unbelievably complacent, like just one of those just tossed off little ideas. Um, I also, whenever I started querying this, I, you know, I got a lot of people in my mentions saying, you know, kind of caping for her saying like, oh, she means she, uh, she's not from Ireland. She means Belfast, Maine or Belfast, whatever. Like, okay. Well, she lives 600 miles away from there. She did a book event in Belfast last week. <laughs> I, I think if you're in a part of Maine, that's not near Belfast, Maine, which has like, I don't know, 6,000 people, you still think of Belfast where the Titanic sailed from. Yeah. You don't think of Belfast, Maine. Like there's a, you know, there's a Berlin in North Dakota. I think they know <laughs> that these other places exist. <laughs> you wouldn't, you wouldn't refer to capital B Belfast without any sort of identifier. I mean, even though they do that in action films, they say like Paris, France, you're like, yeah, I, 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 I like it. I like it when they do that. My favorite is when yeah. is when they do it with place names that don't exist anywhere else in the world. So Tokyo, Japan, that's my favorite one. <coughs> you mean it's not to- Tokyo, <laughs> yeah. Wisconsin? Tokyo, um, Ontario. <laughs> yeah. So so that those are the, just the base layers of that, but we're not even scratching it. The other thing is obviously that a lot of the people, a lot of the people who find that funny, as I did, we were sharing it and whatever, they were replying with, I thought, uh, even funnier stuff, which was basically sort of black and white photos, you know, sort of file photos from the troubles, you know, people, gunmen resting across barricades, you know, old ladies, you know, ticking off British soldiers, you know, kind of very classic shots that you see in sort of handsomely mounted photo journalist books from the 70s and 80s, you know, with the Northern Irish mm. tint. Very famous pictures that we've all seen a million times. Mm. And underneath they were captioned with things like, you know, Look at them. No one looking at their phone, just enjoying the moment. <laughs> uh, you know, that was, I remember when this was all fields and it's like, you know, literally barricades over like a, a housing estate, you know, the Divis Flats or something in Belfast. So it was all quite funny and people were getting in, involved in it. But then the third and fourth and fifth and sixth layers were people who were sharing this one image of a riot that had an elephant uh, in, in, in the forefront. <laughs> So, so most people were sending this as a joke. It was kind of a, it was, you know, they were doing it ironically. There was no statement as to whether or not this was true or not. But I was very surprised to see that photo there um, because I created it some years earlier um, as a joke with uh, my uh, for, former colleague, Michael Murray, uh, of a thing we did called Remembering Ireland. And the reason that this was so particularly ironic is because Remembering Ireland was a uh, piss take that we did. I mean, he did most of the imagery and then I would just kind of contribute with like words and sort of ideas and stuff. But it was a sort of the two of us would work on concepts that were designed to rebuke and satirize the sort of pub wall nostalgia tat yeah. that was everywhere on, you know, Irish granny Facebook is what we would call it, IGFB. Mm-hmm. So, and obviously it has its own English versions and American versions. Like, do you remember when you left your doors open and everyone ate lard and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of four Yorkshireman sketch stuff, but just for real. Um, you know, I saw a cat and a dog having a scrap the other day, bring back hanging, you know, that kind yeah. of stuff. And we had created this as a, as a just as a surreal sort of file, a faked up file photo to kind of satirize the sort of the pomp and, and ceremony of these images that often looked so kind of beautifully shot, like a sort of Renaissance mm. photo. You know, there's some photojournalist is going to win an award for it. But we thought, what's a really surreal and stupid thing we could put there? So we put an elephant in there, Banjo the Riot Elephant. And we had incredibly dry, <laughs> we had incredibly dry, like, 
you know, press association style copy underneath that I wrote, which was like uh, footage of Banjo the Riot Elephant spotted a disturbance in Belfast and, you know, blah, 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 whatever year it was. And I thought, well, another thing we could do is we could, we could stick like a little Noam Chomsky in there. And <laughs> because it was funny, but I was like, yeah. it's not funny enough. I, I, and also I, I want, I want people to look at this and maybe they'll think that the f- elephant was photoshopped, but then they'll be like, well, does that mean Noam Chomsky was there? Because they wouldn't Photoshop both. <laughs> or maybe <laughs> or maybe f- the elephant was there, but Noam Chomsky wasn't, and that's the joke. So we were kind of enjoying that sort of like the layers of misinformation and how we could get away with it. We didn't think very much of it. People from Northern Ireland and Ireland really liked it, and we did quite well with the, the, the posting. But we didn't think much of it. So after this thread, I'm like seeing on these and I'm absolutely reeling. So I start searching. I do a reverse image search and I find that it's everywhere. Like it's been there for, for the past three or four years since we, you know, had our fun with it and, you know, kind of did fairly well. We're seeing it put up unattributed everywhere. And not only that, but people have actually gone in and they, they've put in my caption, but they put it in like black text on white at the bottom. So it looks like it's a press association sort of official citation. You know, it has that, you know, that very specific formatting that you see for file photographs that might've been taken from the Library of Congress or something. Mm -hmm. So all these little markers, all these little sort of uh, signifiers that this is actually a real strange thing, but it's a real thing were created. So (laughs) I've discovered there's people on Reddit asking, you know, can anyone give me a date for this photo? Or um, can anyone tell me the backstory to this? And there were people then, you know, perhaps they were taking the piss, but some of them I think were were serious. Like, oh yeah, I remember this. People were telling me about this. Or my dad was actually there on the day and he said it escaped from the zoo. Whatever, you know? So this just took me down a rabbit hole of the very thing that we were trying to talk about in that silly, very throwaway joke that we thought about for four days was like misinformation about people believing anything about, in our case, Northern Irish and Northern Irish history. Mm. And then it got even stranger because someone got in touch to say, oh, I've seen that picture before. Like where? On the wall of the Lansdowne pub in Belfast. (laughs) And so he, I said, can you go and take a picture? He says, yeah, well, it's it's not open yet. So he went and when it was open and he took a picture of the thing and it's like it's on the wall it's on the wall beside like bill clinton visiting belfast <laughs> and you know the the you know the last the titanic sailing away like famous moments in belfast history with <laughs> no sign signifier or acknowledgement that it's even remotely a joke or that it's even a question that it's a joke it's right. they believe that this is another thing that happened in belfast history or maybe the people who designed the pub or put it up we're just like looking for, oh, what's um, interesting moments from Belfast history? So from satirizing fake pub wall tat and nostalgic mm-hmm. stuff, you know, like in pubs where you have to, you know, in Irish pubs, even in Ireland now, there are pubs which have like typewriters on the walls. <laughs> and, you know, they've got street signs that say Tipperary, a long way. You know, we've kind <laughs> of, we sold this, this fake Irishness to the rest of the world and then we bought it back just as happily. The idea that it's now framed on a pub wall, um, just that was possibly the biggest circuitry route through irony and back yeah. again that any posting has ever <laughs> has ever given me. And there was one final coda, which is that uh, Noam Chomsky got in touch to say <laughs> that he'd seen it <laughs> and he'd been sent it a couple of times. And he said, I get everywhere. I'm like Zelig. <laughs> Oh, poor guy. Poor guy. People keep emailing him with stuff, man. I've I've emailed him several times. He always replies. He replies to every single email. Famously, the most the most the most gracious man alive. (laughs) I think (laughs) it's time it's time to leave Noam alone. That's my I think that's my 
That's going to be my uh, my cause going forward. Yeah, stop I, email, stop I emailing my Chomsky. <laughs> you don't want to be the last person to email Chomsky. Like, I feel like that would genuinely be really, really horrifying if you were like the last person to email him. Oh, I know. Like, really inane question. I, a tutor of mine in college, he he got an email from Edward Said the day he died. Oh my God. Yeah, he did. He got an email what from him. What did it say? Uh, he, Oh, I think it was just like, oh, thanks for sending that. Oh. It was like, you know, he was an academic sending it something to another actor or asking his advice or something. And then, yeah, he died like either that day or the next day. And he said, I wonder if I was the last thing he did oh. before he died was send me <laughs> For a minute, yeah. I thought you were going to say, yeah, no, no. I was like, he'd sent him some hate mail. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I was all quite like, sort of quite like the idea of. This is, so, this is so, so fascinating. And it like, and it so ties into like our fixations on this show. Like, sort of, you know, what, like, what is what is it what is a digital object like once it once it leaves once it leaves the hands of the maker and gets hosted on a on a platform like what like what like what is this like what what substance does it have what meaning does it have is it the meaning that's attributed to it is it the meaning that uh that that it was originally invest invested with uh, by the person who makes it is it a piece of art is it a piece of like what like like what like what is it like what is it how where does it stand in the kind of in the sort of kind of broader system of symbology um and what this reminds me of more than anything else this is my this is one of my favorite this is my favorite little ancient history facts um I'm calling it an ancient history fact uh, so that no one assumes that I'm an academic and puts me on a list in their <laughs> big I'm not mad report. I'm not an academic, so you can't so you can't get me. Phoebe <laughs> um, Roy, Roy, social media Phoebe user. Roy, not an academic. You know what? You know what the wor- <laughs> you know the worst uh, descriptor I've ever had of what I, of uh, what I do because you know who's saying you still sometimes get journalist even though you don't you basically yeah. don't do like journalist work anymore. Uh, the worst I've ever had was uh, was comedian, and I was like, "No, absolutely fucking not! How dare you!" <laughs> I, get, I, get, I, I get comedian all the time, uh, especially when I go on radio. I think they just love introducing a yeah. comedian, and then I'm like, "Well, I mean, better yuck it up, I guess." My <laughs> yeah. God. Well, you uh, want me to make you laugh? Absolutely, under no circumstances. Do you want to hear what I what I found out from the uh, JFK facts Substack? <laughs> You want to talk about? I want to talk about comedy, my friend. Yeah. So this is my and one of my favorite my favorite little little kind of quirks of of ancient history because when people think about when people think about ancient civilizations and people think about antiquity, even people who've studied it, this is not like a kind of this is not a kind of a oh well, civilians uh, sort of sneer or anything. But people think of people think of there being ancient civilization and then there's another ancient civilization there's another ancient civilization and then you have modernity so people think well egypt was first and then there was greece and then there was rome and then we're not sure because we don't know enough about medieval um the medieval period to be able to make that you know make that call but what people don't don't really tend to know or tend to think about is uh, how much overlap there was so if so there was a huge overlap with so-called ancient so-called ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and ancient Rome and for that matter ancient Mesopotamia but forget about that for the for the time being but people had their own ideas about other civilizations that were going on 
that were going on in in concert with them and one and a big and a big kind of cottage industry uh in um in egypt in the kind of you know second and first century century bc was selling pretendo ancient egyptian tat to roman tourists amazing um, so like so so you're so you're a kind of you're a rich Roman. You go to Alexandria on your holes, and you get told by a kind of by a kind of Egyptian sort of market sort of marketplace seller. Oh yeah, and this this is a sacred ancient Egyptian amulet. Uh, this is sacred to the goddess Isis. So you take this with you, and you know you'll you'll have a great time. And the Romans would come back, sort of saying, "Oh yeah, look, look at what I got." And it's just, and it's just a piece of crap. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a valueless, meaningless piece of crap that was uh, the closest they had to a mass-produced piece of tat. But they had this idea about what ancient Egypt was. Even to them, this was ancient Egypt, and they had all these ideas about what it was like. And uh, and they wanted to participate in that fictionalization, but the items they had were they uh, did they have their own meaning because they were invested with that meaning? Were they still just a piece of piece of kind of meaningless tap? Would they have meant anything more if they really had been if they really had been a thousand years old? Um, it's sort of not clear, and it's kind of and it's all part of the same of the same way that that humanity experiences images and particularly images mm. images and objects that get invested and then reinvested with with kind of meaning and memory and how they get distributed and reproduced and passed around and I just I just think it's I just think it's fascinating yeah I mean it really reminds me I I did a German exchange when I was in school and I stayed with a Turkish German family who were uh, really lovely, and there they had a family friend who I met at some function in a shisha bar, and he <laughs> said that when the Berlin Wall came down, he said everybody he knew was finding a, just a, rare, a random block of cement somewhere, smashing up to as many places, spray painting it as much as possible, and then smashing it into pieces and just selling it to mm. Americans as part of the Berlin yeah. Wall. And he said, because you know everyone was coming back and saying I've got a chip from the Berlin Wall and you're like well I mean it's a bit like those you know people going to like the Holy Land and coming away with a piece of you know Christ's cross or yeah. whatever it's like <laughs> it is a tale of as old as time you know it could be just a you know a, a fake photograph of an elephant at a riot featuring Noam Chomsky featuring Noam Chomsky <laughs> I, like, honestly I'm quite impressed that that many people recognised him just from the picture. Yeah, nobody ever mentioned him or noticed him. So that's the thing. So um, it actually, the reason it kind of came back on people's radar again last week was because it was some fairly sort of sensible, not at all piss-takey, uh, cool pictures from history. <laughs> um, Twitter account shared it on their Twitter and on their Instagram. And I got tagged in it like 5,000 times. <laughs> and uh, any anytime someone takes a drug near a world leader or anytime something about that picture goes around i get tagged in um be careful what you get famous I was, I was for, gonna say that, but this, this feels like a very innocent thing to be well known yeah to be well known for like it is well i mean i did i mean anytime some like i did get after after i did the mary mcalise thread in which i discuss me age 18 serving 
drinks to Mary McAleese while I was on ketamine, unexpectedly. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I got loads of uh, lovely things happen, which is great, and probably speaks to the fact that I am insulated from an awful lot of the bad consequences <laughs> that can happen to other people, more uh, less privileged people. Um, but also I got loads of incredibly bargain basement offers to like, oh, uh, take this drug and see if you can get to meet uh, this MP or something. People who are like doing the exact copy and paste of their thing, um, which I mean, you know, at the point at the point I was uh, very much a struggling w- want to be a professional writer. So uh, I'm, I'm proud of myself for not taking them up. Um, but I also got one offer from, I got a DM, which has since been deleted. I wanted to find it, but the person's also closed their account, who offered to bring me on his friend's stag that he was arranging and almost be like the drug sommelier. Oh my God. You know, so like I would, yeah. So he would wheel me out because his, they had some big bonding moment in their friend group about the thread that I would be there almost like as a special guest. Guess who we've got here. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, he was like offering all the money and everything else. And I was like, no, I mean, first of all, this was when I was 18. So, you know, I mean, I definitely got fairly zesty back then, but I'm an <laughs> old man I now. I can't do I've, this. I'll die. <laughs> yeah. And like, like it was two months before my first child was to be born. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can't, I, I can't. How awkward would that I lo- be? I love the idea I mean, of you saying to your partner, who's presumably just about to drop, saying, "Okay, so mm. I am gonna go and take Ket with a stag do. Is that all right? Call me if you go into labour. Mm. Call just give me a like, little call." And also, <laughs> like, yeah, and also, I guess also the only reason you're there is because you did a tweet or the, like. Because of something you did when you were a teenager that you can't like escape from. Yeah, or, or the fact that like I, I kind of role played it in my head because I was like, part of me was like, if I do this, it'd be such a funny thing to experience. It's a terrible thing about writing about yourself professionally is you often root for incredibly awkward and horrible situations because you know that it'll be such good copy. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, what would that be like? Because obviously they're going to they think it's going to be great, and they they think it's going to be great for like the five minutes of the thing. What do I do for the rest of the night? Am I still there? <laughs> do I have to, do I am, leave? Am I, am I, do I have to follow them around? <laughs> like, am I going with them? Am I supposed to take drugs with them? Am I supposed to have any expertise? Like, I don't, like, because of this one thing that happened, you know, when I was 18 and for many years after that. But when would, when would I make my exit? Would I be allowed to? Do, am I yeah. am I their servant for? The, am I just a butler? It's, 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 drug, I'm a drug it's like butler. Being, it's like being like days. the wedding photographer. It's like, do I eat yeah. or do I just leave now? Is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's sort of. A do, very, I go, I mean, do I go? Thank you for comparing me to. I think, I think a wedding photographer has just has just a modicum more dignity, baby. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a it's a it's an absolutely direct translation of uh, of dignity there. Um, <laughs> But the fact that I'm able to give you all of these considerations proves that it was a consideration. I was actually thinking, would this just be so fucking yeah. funny and worth doing in a sort of, you know, uh, I did this crazy thing. Hey, Vice Magazine, will you buy it off me? <laughs> yeah, kind of it, was, it does It does sort of speak to, there was that tweet that was going around uh, the other day or like the other week, like at least at the time of recording, which was just like that period of time when like uh, Vice would sort of pay you a lot of money to like, kind of do the stupidest things and like hurt yourself in like different ways uh or to like make a video that kind of got like forty five thousand views is just not going to happen anymore but it's yeah. like and I, w- I was thinking about that in terms of like nostalgia you know because like obviously there's one there's one layer to this which is um about like nostalgia accounts and the ways in which even i don't know i i i, I look there's a few kind of like local history things that i used to sort of follow on my facebook account um which was sort of just like you know things in your area that used to like in the 60s and the 70s and so mm. on and 
you know, like presumably none of them have elephants on Noam Chomsky, although I didn't check. <laughs> um, I need to like go back and check. But like in the comments and stuff, you would still have these kind of like fabrications of what this life would be like, right? Like the whole kind of, oh, things were better in the 70s or the 80s or so on. Um, and, you know, now that everyone has smartphones and like, you know, puffer jackets and stuff, like, you know, it's horrible and I can't even go. Like we saw fabrications of how good the past was, even with stuff like, you know, the cold and the blackouts, like, you know, upcoming blackouts and everything. And, you know, we may do and all that stuff is kind of this sort of confected nostalgia that is um, imbued onto this imagery anyway. Um, and in your case, like it sort of feels like that was happening and like all the elephant and the Chomsky thing were just sort of like inconveniences or they were just sort of things yeah. that people were willing to look over because what's at, what the, the purpose of these images aren't to sort of be like reflections or snapshots of life in that moment and to sort of think about where you like or sort of like you know an opportunity to reflect on where you are based on like what the what your sort of physical location used to be they almost serve this kind of yeah they to 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 certain people they kind of they serve to kind of present a different purpose and i wondered whether you had any thoughts on just like nostalgia posting generally and where in terms of your image like was it the case where um you sort of felt that like ultimately Chomsky and the elephant and stuff didn't really matter and people were sort of choosing to ignore that because what they actually wanted the image served but in a way that like you weren't really going to be able to refute by being like this is clearly like a fake image yeah so I mean the whole point of remembering Ireland as a whole was to reflect on the fact that so much of this nostalgia posting is either a sort of palliative for people who think it's just absolutely incredible that they were a child once and I think that's a very that's a very common impulse and it, layered in that is loads of incredibly harmless things it's oh you can't get this chocolate bar anymore or this is what like as you said this is what that big housing development that everyone knows in your area it used to be fields and what did you that's interesting. I like all that mm. stuff. Um, the RTE archive and the BBC archive, I love all that stuff. When they do Vox Pops with like people in an unimaginably distant past and you see how mores have changed, how, how speech has changed. You know, you, people know that they're talking to a BBC reporter, so they start speaking in their telephone voice, you know, in the East End. Yeah. I love all that stuff. Like I unashamedly and unabashedly love that stuff. But when it comes to like sort of the use of... The use of nostalgia almost as a radicalizing agent, uh, you know, with a small R or a big R. And we know the people who do, you know, the more nefarious mm. end of it, the sort of people who are genuinely, I think, particularly in a British context, and I think you can't separate it from thoughts of empire and thoughts of, you know, we used to own things and or people. And <laughs> we're not saying that we should again, but wasn't it great when we did? Uh, and a lot of that can be then jumbled in with other stuff like, oh, we used to hit children and we all turned out fine. And you're like, like that was so unpopular 30 years ago and 40 years ago that it was made illegal. <laughs> and there's people now who have never been hit, who are now co-opting their parents and their grandparents' mm. negative experiences, which were so traumatic that it was made illegal. Even take the morality aside, people did not want it anymore. <laughs> and they're not co-opting it. Like maybe we should go back to that. So that sort of stuff. And then of course you got the broader the broader weirdness of nostalgia is uh, you can you can trick yourself into thinking that things were better in a way that's just motivates you towards complacency. And probably the best example of that is Northern Ireland, really, because after we did this and after we were showing, you know, all these people were in the comments of uh, the Reverend Dr. Wolf, 
and saying, you know, uh, look at all these soldiers just, you know, living in the moment or, you know, everything was so good back then. That was a, that was deliberately a, 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 a sub, an absurdist response that kind of was a reductio ad absurdum of the idea that everything in the past was good because even the troubles was good. And we thought that that was quite funny. Like six months later, there was a caller on the Mark Patterson show on BBC Radio Foil who was talking about the COVID lockdowns and the restrictions. And uh, Mark Patterson, who's an excellent broadcaster, sort of a local radio hero, uh, he's talking to this older woman who's saying, well, you know, this is terrible now. I can't even leave my house. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I've never known anything like it. This is the worst, you know, this is the worst it's ever been. He says, are you, are you sure, Bridie? I mean, we're worse even, you know, you've lived through a lot, you know, here in Northern Ireland. He says, oh, sure, during the troubles, you could get blown up or shot, but you didn't get the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, that is... That's literally the thing that we we couldn't have given such an obvious and over the top, you know, time heals all wounds, but some that should not mm. be healed, you know. <laughs> and in a situation like that, or a situation like an elephant at a riot, it's just funny. And it's a, isn't it funny that images can make people think things mm. are real? But I think more nefarious and some of the things that we we try to bite at at Remembering Ireland was those things where it is actually used more perniciously. And I think you can see that definitely in the sort of the right wing of British politics, which I would have used to send was like sort of fringe, but is now absolutely center plank of the Conservative Party and a third of the Labour Party, <laughs> you know, that people who are nostalgic for a past that they refuse to name and so they use shibboleths by which to describe them. So they talk about things like people leaving their doors mm -hmm. open and they don't say, for example, that, you know, everyone they saw was white uh, or they say you know, things are substituted in. You know, you can say how much you wanted to have wagon wheels that were slightly bigger, but you can't perhaps say that you, you know, you didn't like to hear so many different languages down at your local grocery store. You know, those kinds of things. And they are very clearly it's the dog whistle is turning into a megaphone in so many aspects of, I think, British political life, even stuff as silly as Facebook posts, even stuff as, you know, inconsequential as, you know, pub wall, back in the days, do you remember the golden mm. years, tat? Mm. It does have an effect and it is something that you can monitor and you can measure and which I think is probably getting worse as people's own horizons become more and more limited, as people are more and more shut inside their own homes, literally by, you know, cost of living and also just by shrinking sort of high streets and everything else. So I think there's a very silly and a very serious side to this incredibly stupid story. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I, I continue to learn lessons from it because like, as I said, yeah. last week I heard more people talking about it and it all kicked off again. It was, <laughs> you know, so it's, it is one of those things. It's a, it's a very strange weather vein for where we are as a culture in terms of, you know, staring into our own navel and not liking what we see yeah. back. And I think also, it, um, I'm very interested in what you say about, um, about sort of the, the, the dog whistling of, uh, of nostalgia posting, because most of the nostalgia posting I see, it's not even dog whistling at this point. It's literally, it's literally just, Hey, Hey, <laughs> look, <laughs> I am, I am, I am a simply huge racist and huge liar, loads of liars knocking around. Um, I, I've said this before on my, um, but I'm 
I'm extremely fortunate, extremely grateful to have parents in their 70s who do not tell fucking lies about what it was like being <laughs> being children in the 50s. Um, and I mean, at least at least in part of it was because my fa- my father's parents were both refugees and um, it was extremely difficult for them to find uh, to find work because of being refugees. So when my dad was a kid, they were very, very poor. And he said, yeah, this this sucks. It's horrible. It's really, really horrible being extremely poor. And it's really, really horrible being extremely poor uh, with two refugee parents um, from different ethnic backgrounds in a very, very racist country. That's that's not nice. It's not nice. And anyone who's pretending it's nice is lying and has something to sell you. Um, and they were both extremely fortunate having been young people in a very, 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 very brief blip in the post-war social consensus. So they both went to university for free and they both and they were allowed, and they were able to buy a flat on one person's, yeah, <laughs> one my, person's my, income. My, uh, my dad's a 75 year old man who is similarly not particularly rose tinted about that stuff. He He is very aware of the fact that he was able to, you know go to university for free and buy a house for, I think, six rubbed farthings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he was able to have a family of 11 children. Okay. And on a for most of it, after my mom died, on a single civil servant's yeah. wage, which it's is not a very, not very high, high wage. So he's aware of all that stuff. But he's also aware that he didn't get the right to vote as a Catholic until he was 29. Fuck. You know, so... Yeah, so these things are such yeah, recent it's, history. Yeah, yeah exactly. For, it's so, for yeah, it's so it's all it's all so recent. Um, and I'm in, and I'm also interested. In, like I'm very aware we're very much running out of time. Um, I would quite like to have this conversation for for longer. Um, but I think a lot of it as well intersects with um, intersects with the kind of uh, the kind of educational training which has been. Um, assaulted and derided as being valueless and useless over the last sort yeah. of over the last well, what 40 50 years so like anything like sort of history of art history of understanding the image um anything to do with uh, media studies anything to do with the legibility of the legibility and the meaning of images and sources and i think that a lot of it is that people don't look that closely and they've never been taught how to think about about images not not really not in any kind of serious way and everyone you know everyone well i suppose literally everyone in this country has been brought up in this atmosphere of extreme hostility to the idea of something like something mm. like yeah media studies or something that's going to teach you how to kind of how to think about and decode an image so and you see this and you see this all the time so there was like i remember last year um last year uh, just uh, just after russia invaded ukraine and there was a picture that was doing the rounds which was um which was supposed to be like it was it was supposed to be an image of a russian soldier doing something appalling um and it was and it was reposted and retweeted and shared and shared and shared and shared and i looked at it and said and thought that's sand there's not what that what kind of temperature and countryside do you think is in ukraine in february that's sand this is this is clearly a monstrous picture and it's clearly a picture from somewhere else that has sand but people weren't even looking at it before they were just look reshare reshare distri- distribute sorry shame i interrupted you but i just wanted to finish what i was going to say about that uh, no i was i was going to speak again about the education to some extent, I think 
Irish people, particularly Northern Irish people, uh, exist kind of as daywalkers in British mm. society because um, obviously as a Northern Irish person, I am sort of Schrodinger's Brit, where I am both things. <laughs> I have an Irish passport and a British birth certificate and I move very freely in both places. People are terrified to even ask, so it's fine. <laughs> um, there's always the, always the fear that they're going to offend. Uh, we're like the celiac vegans of nationalities. Just, just people are terrified they're going to offend us. Um, yeah, border guards fear you. Women want to be with you. <laughs> That's true. But it's weird. It's like you're uh, someone who's steeped in British history, steeped in British politics, steeped in British you know culture. We support you know British football teams. We listen to music and TV and film. It's very very influenced by Britain in both parts mm-hmm. of Ireland, but Northern Ireland especially. But when we get there to the mainland and we live in London, uh, as as uh, my unionist uh, friends uh, would say, the mainland, uh, it's like you're, you're British, quote unquote, and I'm happy to say that I've, you know, that that's the catch all, that's the legal term, but you're, it's like you're British, but you have sort of, you've had like awareness training in empire and you've had some sort of idea of systemic uh, grievances and some idea of conquest and and what it is, um, because those things are actually taught in Ireland and particularly in Irish identifying parts of Northern Ireland as well. But in Republic of Ireland, Republic of Ireland know exactly you know what went on. There was a fantastic uh, thing I witnessed yesterday, which was after loads of Irish fans, uh, you know, Irish football fans were kind of mocking England for going out of the World Cup. You know, not in very good sport, but it also was just you know quite funny for some people and someone you don't have to be delicate uh, it's fine it is funny (laughs) yeah an English person I'm going to just read this to you because it really it just it kind of broke my brain so genuine question he says why do Irish even hate England so much I wouldn't care one bit if Ireland was to be successful I love the conditional clause if Ireland was to be successful by the way because it implies that it's it is such a (laughs) a hypothetical I mean it has been a while yeah this guy (laughs) this guy <laughs> uh, this guy, I know it really, really has in the football yeah. context. So this guy replies: says the famine, the uprising, the black and tans, bloody Sunday, Crook Park massacre, window decks, just to name a few. And the guy, the original poster, and God bless him, replies like you know immediately, like minutes later. Probably our education system. Then I've never heard of any of those. I just always knew there is tension between us. And so, like, I read that and like I felt part, you know, like individual grains of my IQ melting away. I was like, okay, well, he, you know, it's like that, you know, I think you should leave memes. Like, he said it, you know, the actual, the idea that these, these things which are, you know, taught in Irish schools about Britain, for example, or these things that are taught about history uh, are not translated into the British yeah. school system. I sometimes think that that can't be completely true because at the same time, you know, a lot, a lot of people were alive when the troubles was happening, but what did they think it was? You know, what did they think was it actually about? Or what did they think, you know, when they went to see maybe films that talked about yeah. this stuff, but maybe they just didn't go and see them. So there is an, abs- an absolute, I wouldn't even say it's, it is a knowledge gap, mm. but it's an empathy gap mm. that exists, yeah. I think. And sometimes it feels like you're going completely insane because we are exactly the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that one of us is aware of, how power works systemically and because it has typically been used against us mm. and another has benefited massively from systemic power, but it has been completely invisible mm-hmm. to them. You know, it's like that, for that term that's used, that uh, 
uh, analogy that's used about libertarians. They're house cats. You know, they're dependent on an enormous amount of things which keep them alive, <laughs> but they have absolutely no idea what they are and presume themselves to be above them. Mm. So to me, that's, that's the thing that, I don't know, there's, there's an anger, I think, that is born from that, that ignorance or the fact that when it's pointed out, they feel like they're being personally attacked. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll stick to elephants. This is all getting very heavy. <laughs> There is like a lot that I wish we could talk about and I and actually it would be really nice to have you on in the mm. new year because I think one of the things that I've really been fascinated about is just kind of like the perpetuation of images and like what happens when also you do a post and you can't get away from it, which is mm. definitely something that I have in various instances, um, you know, and uh, like I, I think about like I, if we had time, I would I really wanted to like see, look at um, the elephant Noam Chomsky post in the same in a similar way to like the kebab cat post, which I don't know whether we've spoken about on the show. Maybe I did when you weren't around, Phoebe. Uh, but that also like a post that kind of recirculates every so often. And even though it's like a completely fabricated story, like always, always goes viral. And like there's something sort of really kind of oddly innate about mm. that. Um, and so it'd be good to like just chat about that at some point in the future. Um, if you'd be up for it, it's like, you know, the kind of the permanence of nostalgia and like, it's kind of dislocations. I, I will have to check because I, I am starting at the Foreign Policy Exchange on Monday. <laughs> oh yeah, fair enough. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this is not a big. It's not a big thing. I can have a word with them because they, they, they're actually they're actually so cool. If you got to know them, they're actually so cool. Um, about days off and that. So, um, but which is, I mean, amazing considering all the incredible work yeah. they do there. Yeah. Um, but yes, I would love to come back, and I would be yeah, absolutely be delighted fun. to talk about anything. But in the in the meantime, um, I was going to say that you've you've done some cool stuff with the fence. But like, if people want to follow the stuff you're doing, and also like they want to buy your book, which I completely forgot to plug. I'm so sorry about that. How can they do that? Uh, you can get my book at mammybook.com, M-A-M-M-Y book.com. Another thing I did not realize was, I suppose I'd had heard of it slightly, but um, the racial connotations of the term mammy in America, um, where it is much more associated with white people, minstrel shows, yeah. uh, oh denigrating black people. So once or twice that has been pointed out to me that, um, and I've had to say, well, the Irish term for a moment, <laughs> I can't do anything about that. It is a complete coincidence yeah. that I can't change. Different, different um, places are different. Uh, different places are different. And there is a sort of amount of uh, sort of solipsism and thinking otherwise, but it was quite funny. Um, yes. And if you would like to subscribe to The Fence, which is a magazine I co-edit, uh, that's very good. We talk about uh, a lot of stuff. Our newsletter is very good. So you should subscribe to that every week. Um, and other than that, you can just find me on Shockriff Beats at Twitter um, for however long I'm still allowed there with all my wacky skits and routines. <laughs> Probably keep Musk annoyed all day and night. I was going to say, like, we forgot to even like, mention this at the top, but you know, like the booing, but Elon Musk getting booed. <laughs> he deleted the video. He del Well, he deleted the user who posted the original yeah. video. It's incredible. Um, I mean, he, he's the, the most fragile parody yeah. of a man. I, mean, I just, I, it's astonishing how, how much further he goes through the bar of plausible deniability that he is exactly the guy that you presumed he was yeah. at the start. He's just the world's most divorced man. I, who... I wish, for, yeah, I mean, I wish, like, I, I, we do try to, like, limit how much we talk about him, but, like, sometimes he just comes out with stuff It's like, oh, we kind of have to mention it. Um, I, and, yeah, like, the whole kind of being booed at Dave Chappelle stuff is, like, very funny. We should, like, maybe on the next episode we can, uh, we can, we can open Yeah, that'll be that. fun. We can do an oral history. We'll just listen to it second yeah. by second, <laughs> pausing for we're laughter. We're not even going to release an episode yeah. next week. We're just going to release the audio of the booing. Well, um, 
BB, do you want to do any plugs before we close out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think I'll do that. Um, I uh, I run a Seinfeld podcast with uh, Milo Edwards called Masters of Our Domain, which you can follow on Twitter at Masters of Pod. And I also just um, remembered I have a, I have a story out in a book um, that has been out for several months now, and I um, keep forgetting <laughs> to mention it. Um, <laughs> but if you would like to uh, read a a uh, collection which is um, sort of new and contemporary responses to Sophocles' Antigone, which I'm sure you would because it's very good. It's a very good collection. Um, you can order that from the English and Media Centre should you wish to read my uh, little ghost story that's in that. It has, but yeah, it literally has been out since I think August. <laughs> I keep forgetting to mention it. <laughs> so, um, and on that note, uh, we'll close out. So have a good one and we will catch you. Yeah, we'll catch you on the next one. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye.